0: to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we discuss all things related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot.
1: And I'm Kelly. How you doing today, Dermot? Really good. How you feeling about this episode?
0: Great, because we already did it once and the microphone died on us. So this is our second version.
1: Well, it didn't die so much as I didn't plug it in properly. Mm.
0: Yeah, so it was bad. The lapel mic, we had one of them recording two voices. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and it was... Dermot's was the one that was not working, so,
0: yeah, yeah. so I sounded like I was running from
1: Which is a problem because I'm sure you've noticed I talk I uh project my voice. I speak from the diagram the diagram. The diagram. I speak from my diagram <laughs> more than Dermot does. So hmm. uh it's pronounced Diet Pragum. <sighs> yeah. All right. That's enough of our
0: Silly stupid, banter. stupid crap. Our banter in the in the previous version was great, but it all got deleted.
1: Um. All right, well, before we get into the episode, which is, we have to get all the banter out now because this one is uh, a bit of a heavy topic, mm-hmm. but before we get into the heavy topic, let's do a little plug for the Blooms and Barnacles blog. We have a new post up this week entitled Haroon al-Rashid. Could you give our listeners, who might want to become our readers, uh, a quick little rundown about that one?
0: Yeah, Harun al-Rashid is a the uh, Abbasid caliph from I think seventh or eighth century Iraq, modern day Iraq, who was the patron or character who appears in the Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. And he's a real caliph, and uh, one of the figures uh, involved in the early phase of the translation movement of Greek texts into Arabic mm-hmm. and or Persian texts into Arabic uh, in that period of time. So he's a very important <laughs> historical figure. That he's the archetypal caliph. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this uh, relation to Ulysses, it's because there is a correspondence between him and Leopold Bloom. Mm
1: -hmm. And if you'd like to know why somebody would tie an 8th century caliph from Baghdad to a 20th century Jewish man from Dublin, well, (laughs) you'll just have to read the post. That's enough of that. Let's get into this. So... Uh, we're kind of picking up where we left off in the last episode. A quick recap. Do you remember what we talked about in the previous episode called yeah. Pervious Breakfast?
0: Oh, good God. I'm, I get so muddled with all the blog posts and the podcast. I was hoping
1: the awesome
0: title would jog your memory. <laughs> it was your version of Latin. Well that
1: was. But what was the the episode about? Oh god, I don't know. I don't. Know. <laughs> you get an F in your your <laughs> literature class. That's what we kind of set this dynamic up as teacher student. Uh-huh. What would happen if you said to your your teachers back in the Christian Brothers school, "I don't know, teacher. I don't know."
0: write it out six times, they will give you writing out as punishment. You have to write out six pages like, of handwriting. They
1: didn't like make you go cut a switch and then beat
0: you with it. it. Do you remember the thing in Harry Potter where Dolores Umbridge makes Harry write out with a pen mm-hmm. and the, the, the scars appear on the back of his hand as he mm-hmm. writes? It was exactly like that. But in Irish? It, except for the fact they, they would give you, like, six or seven pages of you copybook to write out. Of. You had to write out just text. And by the time you were done, your hand was in a cramped claw. Mm-hmm. And it was it was to make you feel the physical pain. Mm-hmm. It wasn't to teach you anything. It was to inflict physical pain on you without actually laying a hand on you. It was brilliant.
1: And you graduated, right?
0: No. You dropped out of school? Oh, I graduated. But yeah. I, I I wouldn't so, call it, like, a little, like, water cap or anything.
1: ergo... What you're telling me is that if I caused you more physical pain, you would actually remember what we talk about here week to week.
0: You made me write out the blog post six times. All right. So last
1: time we talked about Mr. Deezy's lineage, Mm -hmm. and we ended up by talking about his interest in foot and mouth disease. Does that ring a bell? That
0: does. All right. All the dead cows.
1: I had a a teacher in school named Mr. mm O'Keefe, and Mr. O'Keefe sort of looked like, I'm not going to describe it because I hope Mr. O'Keefe listens to this podcast and, and it's alive and well.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Mr. O'Keefe was a fantastic teacher. Good. But he used to look kids in the eye in class and go, "While wow, you're passing school, but you're failing life." Hmm. That was like my favorite thing a teacher ever said in class. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly cuz he didn't say it to me. So I'm saying it to you. All right. All right. Well, we'll save any other Stories for Eric, we are solidly distracted, all right, so we talked about foot and mouth disease. <laughs> Mr. Deezy wants Stephen to take a letter to his newspaper contracts mm-hmm. to write contacts to write about how the Austrians have found a cure for foot and mouth disease, and Stephen reluctantly
0: accepts which sounds really dubious because we've had foot and mouth disease more recently, and if there was a cure, we'd have probably discovered it by now, so he was probably full of crap
1: mm-hmm. And it was all based on a friend of Joyce's in Italy who kind of put him up to the same task for the same reason, Mm. with the same solution. Mm -hmm. So naturally we go from talking about cow disease to um, an anti-Semitic rant. I guess there there would be a short content warning on this episode. We do talk a lot about anti-Semitism, so if that is not something you, you want to listen about right now. Um, take that into consideration. But if you've read Ulysses, you know that Mr. Deasy is pretty blatantly anti-Jewish, and we're going to talk about that today and kind of the historical context for it. Mm-hmm. We're going to start out with Dermot reading his anti-Semitic rant. But I guess take it away, Dermot.
0: All right, before I say anything, uh, if any here offendeth me, then blame the author, blame not me.
1: That's good advice.
0: Which is a line from, I think, a 15th century song warning young women about the dangers of unwanted pregnancies. Oh. Called Watkins Anyway, I'll read right.
1: it. Oh, and I forgot to mention, if you're following along at home, this first text can be found on page 33 of my edition, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition. We jump around a bit in this episode, but we start on page 33. Dermot?
0: He raised his forefinger and beat the air oldly before his voice spoke. "'Mark
2: my words, Mr. Daedalus,' he said. "'England is in the hands of the Jews, in all the highest places, her finance, her press, and they are the signs of a nation's decay. Wherever they gather, they eat up the nation's vital strength. I have seen it coming these years.' As sure as we are standing here, the Jew merchants are already at their work of destruction. Old England is dying. He stepped
0: swiftly off, his eyes coming to blue life as they passed the broad sunbeam. He faced about and back again. Dying, he said again, if not
2: dead by now.
1: Thank you, Dermot. Although I feel weird thanking your Mel Gibson-esque anti-Semitic rant.
2: Hey now. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's an idea. Mel Gibson could play Mr. Deasy in the movie.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm.
1: Has he got reached his, like, bloated stage He's yet? there, yeah. Okay. Mm. All right, well, the less said about Mel Gibson, the better. <laughs> it's pretty obvious, I think, what Mr. is saying here. He sees the Jews as the cause of all England's problems in particular. Mm-hmm. This kind of echoes the words of Haynes to Stephen at the Tower earlier in the morning, which... If we go back in time.
2: What did Haynes say? I don't want to see my country fall into the hands of German Jews either. That's our national problem, I'm afraid, just now. Back to the present.
1: I thought about making a time travel sound effect, like "dilly dilly dilly." do that, but I thought it was too cheesy. Mm. We see this kind of connection between two characters: one who is actually English, and one who is Irish but is very pro-English, having some pretty negative feelings about the jews and generally blaming all their country's problems on this this group of people Mm. there are two kind of main sectors that are special concerns of mr deezys that he blames the jews for messing up which are finance and the press both of which he has a particular interest in so i don't know perhaps he feels when things don't go his chosen way it must be some shadowy cabal that's uh, messing everything up.
0: Perfidious Jews getting in his way.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's one phrase in particular in here that I really want to focus in on, which is Mr. Deezy's claim that Old England is dying. Beyond the obvious meanings here, you know, he's he's lamenting a bygone era. Old England, He mm. he's pining for a previous state of affairs, wishing that all this newfangled stuff would go away and it could go back to the way, you know, it was in the good days. Yeah. More than that, this sa- the, I believe that this little cast-off line is actually a satirical comment about a series of articles that were written by Joyce's erstwhile friend, Oliver St. John Gogarty, who, is the, who was the model for Buck Mulligan. Mm-hmm. Uh, these articles were called Ugly England. I believe there were three of them. Don't quote me on that. Uh, and they were published in 1906 in Sinn Féin, which is a newspaper, put out by the Irish nationalist group of the same name, under the auspices of their farmer, their farmer, their founder Arthur Griffith. For any non-Irish people listening, could you give us just a few little factoids about Sinn Féin and Arthur Griffith Dermot?
0: Yeah, be- before the nineteen sixteen rising, there were a lot of different groups uh, fighting for, uh, campaigning for Irish independence, different degrees of milit- militant. Mm-hmm. philosophy behind them
1: which we've talked about the fenians who right
0: were... right these were successors to the fenians like the mm-hmm. irb the irish republican brotherhood mm-hmm. um there were different uh, political variations of them um and sinn fein was one of these groups it was founded by arthur griffith who was i think fairly pacifist in nature he i don't think he was particularly particularly militaristic uh, after the 1916 rising the british press as they usually do mangled things completely and they called all of the rebels Sinn Feiners. Mm-hmm. And so the, it became a label. If you were involved in the Rising, you were a Sinn Feiner. And Sinn Fein became this like aggregate label that mm-hmm. all of the different groups kind of became uh, attached mm-hmm. to. And, and it, there's, they're still around today, right? Right. It, it, Sinn Fein, which means ourselves and sometimes will be interpreted as ourselves alone or, uh, you know, went through all these different iterations. It, then it split into the different modern political parties. Some of it went underground in the north of Ireland and continued. In the 1960s, mm-hmm. it reemerges in force as provisional Sinn Féin. There were other breakaway groups. I won't get into that. We'll be here for an hour. Mm-hmm. But provisional Sinn Féin still exists. They claim a direct line of dissent from mm-hmm. this Sinn Féin. Uh, the, the other political parties in Ireland wouldn't recognize that line of dissent if you held a gun to their head. Uh, but that's Sinn Féin. Okay. And they would—they uh, have their own newspaper called On Bloch*, and their own pretty rigorous approach to politics and mm-hmm. ideology.
1: Something I think most people don't know about Arthur Griffith and the Irish nationalist movement at this time is it was fairly anti-Semitic, or at least anti-Semitic views were pretty common amongst Irish nationalists. And Arthur Griffith in particular um, allowed his newspaper to be a, a platform for those views, including... Gogarty's essays called "Ugly England," hmm. as I mentioned.
0: We weren't taught this at school in school in Ireland. No,
1: I learned this from the Irish Times and mm. other sources as well. Right. But most recently, when I was rechecking my sources, the the Times wrote about this. So mm-hmm. that's one you can find that's not behind a, you know, you don't have to have a membership to All read right. that one. Anyway, uh, Gogarty shared these anti-Jewish views, and the series of articles. Kind of detailed the malign influence of the Jews on various aspects of not Irish society but English society. Now this this next part occurs after the publication of Ulysses, but I think it kind of reinforces Gogarty's views on this. In 1937, Gogarty was successfully sued for defamation because of anti-Semitic remarks he made about a Jewish family that appeared in his autobiography as i was going down sackville street so he he definitely has kind of a a pattern Hmm. i've always wondered why joyce hated gogarty so much i mean i think a lot of it was probably just personal Personal. bickering but i really do wonder if one reason that joyce found him so reprehensible and wrote this really kind of unflattering portrait of him in ulysses was because of these anti-Semitic views, he really wanted to make Gogarty look like a buffoon mm-hmm. um, and look like someone who is kind of kissing the ass of the English, even though I don't think Gogarty would have seen himself that way. Right, because
0: Gogarty was a senator, right? In the new he American was, public yeah,
1: he was in, the, he was, yeah, he. I mean, he was a public figure, definitely. Right, right. and I, I also think this is one reason why. Because Gogarty had talked about their falling out. He never really quite understood why they fell out so hard. Mm. He's just like, oh, you know, Joyce, he's a crazy person, basically. But I think if your prejudice is that deep set, it might be hard to understand why someone rejects it so hard. Mm. And I, I I, do think that, that Joyce did not like anti-Semitism. Um, he would have been in Paris, I think, towards the end of the whole... Dreyfus Affair, mm-hmm. which we will talk about that in detail in another podcast, but I think he was very affected by that and other Jewish people that he knew, and I do think he kind of equates anti-Semitism with any sort of a nationalistic view. This is sort of a little pet theory of mine that I've, I've been thinking about over the last few months, is that we see Mr. Deasy's very pro-English, so he's kind of nationalistic for England anyway, and he's right. also the most anti-Jewish character we meet. In the first three chapters, Haynes says something rude about the the Jews. Mm-hmm. As as we move into the next chapter, I, I think there are more examples of that. So it's something to look out for. Right. I think it's. I thought for a while he just matches it with maybe pro English sentiment, but then there are other characters who are very pro Ireland that he that are also anti Semitic. Right. But I, I wonder if that in his mind those two things kind of just went together, and it didn't matter which country that you were.
0: Yeah, and the right wing would have been the right wing French nationalist types that were mm-hmm. going after Dreyfus as well.
1: Yeah, and that that's kind of my my next bit of evidence, mm-hmm. but that okay. is tucked away deep in the middle of Proteus, and we'll okay. get to that in later. like a hundred years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this is also a notable part in Nestor, because we. Talked before about Mr. Deasy's views about the Orange Order and how he's kind of has his historical facts wrong. And Stephen just kind of thought his rebuttal and was just kind of waiting for Mr. Deasy to finish talking, maybe. Mm -hmm. But here, this actually stirs Stephen a bit, and he responds. And Dermot's going to read us his
2: response.
0: A merchant, Stephen said, is one who buys cheap
2: and sells dear. Jew or Gentile, is he not? They sinned against the light. Mr. Deasy said gravely. And you can see the darkness in their eyes and that is why they are wanderers of the earth to this day.
1: Alright. So Mr. Deasy, Mr. Deasy, Mr. Deasy's sentiment against the Jews deepens. Mm-hmm. And he so he he goes from saying they, they control the media and they control finance, which are also classic Jewish stereotypes to another, I I think very insidious set of Stereotypes, and these are all couched in the kind of the the symbolism of this legend called the Legend of the Wandering Jew, mm. which is something I'm in my thirties. I've never heard of until I saw it in Ulysses. It's not it's it is not ever mentioned outright, but it's it's pretty directly you know referenced. I would say, Dermot, is 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 this a legend you would have heard of, heard about before I started talking to you about it?
0: My previous encounter with the wandering Jew was in Walter Miller's science fiction book, A Canticle for Leibovitz, Mm -hmm. which was written in 1960 by Walter Miller, who was a devout Roman Catholic. And uh, it's a science fiction book set centuries in the future after a nuclear war has wiped out most of civilization on earth, and there's a new dark age. And then the second part of the book is set in their version of the Renaissance. And the third part of the book is set in their version of their industrial age. Mm -hmm. And so there's centuries between each chapter. And the Wandering Jew is the character who ties all three together. He's Mm. a bystander who just, he doesn't, he's not depicted negatively. He's just a character Mm. who stands to the side and just watches this terrible cyclical tragedy repeat itself forever. Mm. So it's it's a pretty grim fate that he's got.
1: Yeah, and that kind of makes sense with sort of the more traditional legend, which you say you didn't find the portrayal in that novel particularly Mm. anti-Semitic. But guess what? The legend's kind of anti-Semitic. anti-Semitic yes. Uh anti-Semitic, yes. Shocker. So, as with many legends, there are various versions. Um, I tried to... I'm going to try to find all the, the common elements, but the wandering Jew is believed to be, uh, when when Jesus Christ was en route to his crucifixion, um, either a Jew who mocked him from the side of the road or a Roman soldier who... Also, did th- I can't remember exactly mm-hmm. what it was, but in, in one of the gospels, there's a, a soldier who does something rude to Jesus as well. Right. So it could be either one, depending on who's telling the story. Because of his transgression, he is now cursed to roam the earth until the second coming of Christ. In some versions, he tries to convert to Christianity, uh, in some, he actually does as a way of repentance. It doesn't work. He's pretty cursed, and in all versions, he's he kind of always stays the same age and is pretty miserable. Mm. And I've I've heard speculation as well that Bram Stoker was familiar with this legend. I've also heard Bram Stoker was quite anti-Semitic. That he uh was really liked this legend, and it inspired him to write Dracula. Okay. Yeah.
0: There was also um precursors of vampires too. Varney the Vampire was a mm. character in the penny dreadfuls in okay. the mid nineteenth century. And very cheesy character. and mm-hmm. um, Varney dies. A spoiler. But um, oh, Varney, Jesus, Varney dies at the end by throwing himself into a volcano. I oh. think Mount Etna, if I remember correctly.
1: Which, if you were... I guess vampires are... are I'm not going to get into whether or not a, vam- a vampire would die in a volcano. This is hardcore tangent. <laughs> I need to talk about this horrible medieval legend. Yes. Um, so people really believed in The Wandering Jew. It was sort of the ufo sighting of like the 1200s there were there were sightings reported of the wandering jew throughout various cities in the middle ages so there'd be a rumor like people in cologne saw the wandering jew and i think it was meant to be like oh man the end times are are near the wandering jews around waiting for the second coming so he can be released and i've also read of sightings as late as 1820s utah Hmm. so i think it, it has a because of its Associates with the Middle Ages, it's connected to Catholicism, but
0: it okay. seems like the you, Utah wasn't Mormon by then, right? Because the, the the Mormon Church. Oh, the
1: there. Mormons would have moved out there later. Much so later
0: than that, they were I, still in Missouri. Yeah, they were. I
1: don't. Yeah. I don't have info on who so th- reported settlers. him. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the legend is anti-Semitic, so it plays on a lot of classic Jewish prejudicial tropes. Mm-hmm. Most notably that the Jews were responsible for the the death and humiliation of Jesus Christ Mm. on the cross. The blood
0: libel, yeah.
1: Which I I think is something that people still believe, Mm. um, that they they use to justify anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, And it also portrays the Jews as sort of landless wanderers. They have no true homeland. Um, They have no country of their own. So if they live in your country, they are a perpetual group of foreigners and maybe foreign people in your country make you feel a bit uncomfortable and suspicious of their agenda
2: Mm
1: -hmm. so maybe you end up thinking that if they control all finance and the press as well it's a great
0: way to deflect guilt and attention from the real culprits Mm -hmm. who are usually the rich pricks who are Mm -hmm. running your own country into the Mm -hmm. ground at any given time Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and we also learn because mr DZ invokes this Mm -hmm. Uh, imagery that he probably believes these stereotypes as well, right? Um, they sinned against the light That's why they're wanderers, mm-hmm. you know, basically they, they deserve what they got, which is a pretty gross sentiment in my Yep, in my feeling
0: about to go out of fashion in 30 years <laughs> or so. Yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, well.
1: Steven follows up his own defense by uh, remembering the Jewish merchants he saw outside the Paris Stock Exchange. So we're going to read just a little bit. This is from a much longer paragraph. Paragraph, But Dermot's going to give us a partial quote. Go ahead, Dermot.
0: On the steps of the Paris Stock Exchange, the gold-skinned men quoting prices on their gemmed fingers. Gabble of geese. They swarmed loud, uncouth about the temple, their heads thick plodding under maladroit silk hats. Not theirs these clothes, this speech, these gestures.
1: So does uh, anything jump out at you from that paragraph?
0: Um, well, if this is the ant- the, uh, the character who isn't anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. uh, he, he better not go on Twitter anytime soon.
2: Luckily,
1: that. Twitter won't be invented for
0: over 100 years. Yeah, yeah. Full of um, stereotypes, I mm-hmm. should
1: say. Yeah, um, I think he traffics here in a lot of the same stereotypes as Mr. Deezy. Mm-hmm. The way he sees them, I've always thought it's kind of a a tourist-side view. He walked past them. He doesn't really interact with them. But as worldly as Stephen believes he is, or is at least trying to be, he sees himself as this continental bohemian intellectual. He has a pretty shallow view, at least of this group of people. Mm -hmm. It's fairly colored by stereotype, even though he doesn't outright hate the Jews and blame all the Problems of society on them, mm. but he uses things like gold, gold skin. What is gold skin? Are they all having liver failure? I don't know. Yeah, I think. Although I think the gold is is related to association with money. Gemmed fingers. Um, gabble of geese refers to the their kind of babbling sounds, mm-hmm. like a bunch of geese going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm laughing at myself. Um they swarmed. swarm is something insects do, right, you know about uncouth about the temple, so that also brings into mind the money changers in the the, in temple. the gospel, yeah and yeah, in, in the Bible yeah. um who I believe would have been Jewish,
0: they right? probably would have been yeah. and that's the one time yeah when when Jesus loses his temper mm-hmm. in the entire gospels yeah, and he go he goes basically ape
1: that scene in Jesus Christ superstars pretty good. Mm. Anyway, um, their heads thick plotting. So here's the the point of suspicion: mm. thick plotting under maladroit silk hats. So they're, even their clothes don't fit. They're outsiders, not theirs. These clothes, this speech, these gestures—they're foreigners, which is ironic, because Stephen is an, a foreign student in Paris. Mm-hmm. Stephen is far more foreign than them, and he's looking at them and judging them for their foreignness.
0: Yeah,
1: and though. Stephen, I think, is sympathetic, as we said. I'm really <laughs> making it sound like he's not, but we saw his rebuttal already. Uh, he also sees them as wanderers, like he's susceptible to that the same, wandering Jew yeah, tropes. Yeah, so, um, which there's a, a line further down that says,
0: "Their eyes knew their years of wandering, and patient knew the dishonors of their flesh."
1: So Stephen still kind of buys into these stereotypes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's uh He's not Mr. Deasy or Haynes blaming problems, and he's not the citizen throwing a biscuit tin at Leopold Bloom. But mm-hmm. you know, he—he, he, I think it shows. You know, he is called in the first pages the Jejun Jesuit, which means he's—he's he's very well educated, book smart, but fairly naive. And I—I I think this this really really kind of highlights that. Mm-hmm. So, as much as he hates Mulligan, you know, no one no one knows you better than your your Well, friend. How old
0: is he? He's twenty two. Twenty two. It's 1904. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spent two weeks in Paris, having moved there from one of the most provincial countries in Western Europe, mm-hmm. so you can't be, be unwise to be too harsh on any person at that time who was still harboring these dinosaur ideas in his head. Can I,
1: can I be harsh on him for other reasons? Sure,
0: sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying, you know, it's easy to be all <laughs> high and mighty in the year 2019. Um, but like I grew up in Ireland in the 70s and 80s, and it was a very small country mm-hmm. then. And it was much more advanced by then than it was in 1904 mm. um, but there were still a lot of dinosaur concepts and and you know what's the word primitive uh vestigial uh garbage floating mm-hmm. around the ether and it, it begins to finally break away in the 1990s but it took long enough mm-hmm. so again we're, we're dialing the clock back 80 90 years here the first world war hasn't even happened yet mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know you, you you can expect even a fairly uh, progressive person to still have like a lot of old garbage okay. you know, kicking around, and we'll we'll
1: talk a little bit about that more towards the end mm-hmm. as well. Let's move on with our uh, reading our text here. So, Mr. Deasy says they sinned against the light, and Stephen says,
0: "Who was not?" Stephen said, "What do you mean?" Mr. Deasy asked. He came forward a pace and stood by the table. His under jaw fell sideways open uncertainly. Is this old wisdom? He waits to hear from me. History, Stephen said is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake
2: the ways of the Creator are not our ways, Mister Deasy said. All human history moves towards one great goal: the manifestation of God. Thank mm-hmm.
1: you, yeah. Mr Deasy continues to sort of glorify these these more traditional views. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting about his response here, all human history moves towards one great goal, the manifestation of God. We know that history is the art of Nestor and that Joyce's own historical worldview, I guess you could call it, was cyclical Mm -hmm. based on uh, the philosophy of Vico. Uh, I think we talked about about that in the episode called Nestor. Mm -hmm. So go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, but Mr. Deasy, rather than seeing history as these great cycles that kind of repeat the same characters and incidents, but with kind of diminishing returns, mm-hmm. so the great King Nestor of Pylos becomes Mr. Deasy of Dulkey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Mr. Deasy instead, instead, kind of sees history as a very this a very linear history. It's sort of shaped like a like a door stopper. It just keeps. It's just a wedge that keeps going up and up and up. Um, and Stephen doesn't share this view, and I think it's because he lacks these nationalistic feelings. Stephen is not a nationalist by any stretch, though. Mm. DC calls him a Fenian at one point, um, because he feels like a foreigner in his own country. He's unable to feel pride in these English accomplishments like the the headmaster here does. Um, History's nightmare, which is the outcome of history to him, is, is, it belongs to the Irish and the Jews alike because they're both groups who've kind of been trod underfoot by various other cultures for hundreds if not thousands of years. Right. Um, And Stephen does identify with them. Mr. Deasy identifies with the the sort of English colonial view.
0: Mm. Yeah, DC's view. Um, I think we call it the Whig interpretation mm-hmm. of history, right? It comes out of the classical liberal mindset of the 18th century, mm-hmm. where um, progress becomes the uh, the end goal mm-hmm. of humanity, and it's a vision of this perfectible concept that we can improve things continually over time.
1: Right, and it's history with no endpoint because if your goal is to progress hmm. if you complete that then you've ceased to progress right
0: I think well DC too could he, he, what he says is the, the manifestation of God and one great goal it's kind of teleological and Aristotle sense it's mm. moving there's a purpose to it it's moving toward God in some sense but um, the, the thing about this uh, viewpoint is you wonder is it religious or is it secular and it can be both mm. And books have been written about how many of the Enlightenment philosophers were secretly smuggling in religious concepts to their belief systems. Mm -hmm. So anybody wanting to tease this out, you can you can read this as a religious uh, Christian view. But it also happily uh, happens to dovetail with a lot of secular thought, too, Mm -hmm. that we're going to achieve our ascension to heaven on the starship enterprise uh, to bestride the stars, Mm -hmm. you know, copying from planet to planet. Mr. Mr. Deasy
1: a big Trekkie?
0: He was not, but I I would think D.C.'s uh tele teleology mm. is religious because he's de- he, it's explicitly talking about the manifestation of God. Yeah. But when he would look about him, he would see the proof in the the empire, and we're getting mm. bigger and better, and we have more gold coins every every mm-hmm. year, uh, and more tea from India or wherever. Mm. Uh, whatever part of the you world, think by
1: 1904, like the British Empire had come over its hump.
0: Famously, yeah, it was about at the peak around then. Mm-hmm. The, the historian Toynbee wrote about a beautiful piece of writing in one of his books. He was at the one of the great, the final great parades mm-hmm. of the empire, and he wrote about how not one person in that great crowd could have conceived that from this point on it was going to be downhill all the way. the
1: problem with reaching the peak.
0: Yeah, you are that's when you are at, at your most deluded. And this is exactly the point in history. 1900 was when Queen Victoria, uh, I think she died. She came mm-hmm. to Dublin in 18, 1890s for a tour. Um, and you look at the movies they shot and it, it really does look like grandeur, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they were definitely at the top of the world. But yeah, the, all, the termites were already chewing. It's the, the,
1: so the problem beams. with reaching the peak of Everest these days, too, is you've got to step over yeah. all the rich dudes' corpses on the way down. Yeah. All right, the thing too with mr. Deasy's view is I think he sees this eternal growth without end uh, as being for the good of the empire mm-hmm. is to support this empire which is crushing in in this case the Irish right you know which are technically his own people, yeah um, any and because the Empire is so great and so good and their goal is progress forever and unto the manifestation of God that any Negatives that occur within that system are caused by these outside people. They're caused by Jews, by rebellious subjects Mm -hmm. like the Irish, and Mm -hmm. women, which we get to talk about his uh, sort of misogynist viewpoints next time. I'm
0: surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't 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 that. You
1: would would have thought he'd be, uh, you know, he had like a Susan B. Anthony poster (laughs) up next to his. uh, Emily Pankhurst. Okay, Emily Pankhurst poster up next to his uh, Edward VII. Not poster, a painting, I guess, uh, but...
0: Doggerotype or, or whatever.
1: Yeah. yeah, sure. The goal of all history, then, in his view, is to glorify this dominant system, which excludes these people. And the reason that they're excluded is that they are an impediment to progress and this manifestation of God. So it, it it's really a self-justifying system, I'd say. and mm. belief system. Um, and I think it's... it's uh, I've I've kind of come to see it as a, a bit of a Victorian worldview, but I, I feel like it's probably the the worldview of anyone who's a citizen in an empire at its height. Yeah, you know, I think we we could, as an American, I I, I definitely see American views reflected in this. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: oh yeah, like uh, any any empire will have mm-hmm. people like that. You have to tell lies to yourself to mm-hmm. to justify the crimes you're committing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, Mr. Deasy on the way out of the school, a bunch of other well, not a bunch, but a few other things happen. We'll talk, we have maybe one more episode um, from Nestor that we'll do next time. But this is the final page of Nestor and I call this scene Mr. Deezy's final zinger. Because as Stephen leaves the school to go about his day uh, Mr. Deezy calls after him and he gets in one last little uh, joke up here.
2: I just wanted to say," he said. "Ireland, they say, has the honour of being the only country which has never persecuted the Jews. Do you know that? No. And do you know why?"
0: He frowned sternly on the bright air. "Why, sir?" Stephen asked, beginning to smile. "Cause she never let them in," Mister. D. C. said solemnly. A coughball of laughter leaped from his throat, dragging after it a rattling chain of phlegm. He turned back quickly, coughing, laughing, his lifted arms waving to the air. She never let them in! He cried again through his laughter as he stamped on gaitered feet over the gravel of the path.
1: That's why! All right, anything jump out to you there?
0: Any thoughts? (laughs) His sense of humor's crap. Uh
1: That's an old
0: joke. I've heard that people make that joke. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, No, I have. Okay. I told you, like, you know, you think this stuff just stops in 1904. It doesn't. I mean... And people will say it, and they they will almost be saying it against themselves. It's not necessarily something that some people like. I'd hear people say this in the '80s, mm-hmm. and some people would be saying it as a, and you could tell in the context that it was like, yeah, because we're horrible, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that you know, oh, look at the Jews, we never let them in. It was we we were very intolerant, and that's why we don't right. have it. But
1: Mr. Dizzy's like he's Ha-ha. not telling it in that sense. He's telling yeah. it in the
0: sense of ha ha ha.
1: Well, I think because we know Mr. Deasy is wrong about so many other things, including his own family and personal history, yep. that we should try to find out if this statement is accurate. What, what do you think? What do you know about the the Jewish population of Ireland?
0: Oh, it does exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I was on a bus in Dublin in the nineteen eighties and didn't didn't know the city very well because I wasn't a Dublin native. And, the bus came to a stop uh, somewhere and I looked out the window, oh, there's a synagogue. And I knew there was just one synagogue in Dublin and thought, there it is. And then I just casually looked to the other across the street and there's a mosque and I thought, oh, well, mm-hmm. well, what's going on here? Like, you know, you have a mosque and a synagogue right across the street from one another in Dublin, which is a pretty big city. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's, that was my right. only experience contacting Jewish culture in Dublin. But there's, there's like we've had like, pretty prominent people in mm-hmm. the 20th century in political life in Ireland. Okay.
1: So. Well, let's look at Mr. Deasy's statement. And surprise, Mr. Deasy is totally wrong. Ta-da. Uh, there have been Jews in Ireland for a good long time. Uh, Mostly in big population centers like Dublin, American Cork. Mm -hmm. Um, All the way back in the 1500s, the town of Yall in County Cork elected a Jewish man as mayor. So not only were there Jews in in Yall, but they'd been there long enough to run the town Mm -hmm. and to be chosen to run the town.
0: Right.
1: So that's at least 500 years. Um. The Jews were expelled from Ireland at one point and then readmitted under Oliver Cromwell, just like they were in England.
0: Which is surprising because Cromwell was a bastard.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, In the 19th century, the great liberator himself, Daniel O'Connell, said...
2: Ireland has claims on your ancient race. It is the only country that I know of unsullied by any one act of persecution against the Jews. Uh, except that time you expelled
1: them all. Hmm. But I think they only expelled the Jews once, whereas most other European countries it was like... Over and over and over. Yeah, okay. yeah, Um And it's believed that this saying that Ireland never persecuted the Jews uh, comes originates with Daniel O'Connell. Okay. So by the turn of the twentieth century, the Jewish population of Dublin was actually rapidly growing. I believe one of my sources even has like census data, like it mm. it had doubled, I think, in like a, a pretty short period. Okay. Um, and this was because in Eastern European, uh, in Eastern Europe, where many Jews lived, um, there was a, a pretty big spate of anti-Semitism. Um, so many of these Eastern European Jews were fleeing pogroms and other persecution and during this period that was sometimes called the new exodus and Mm. a lot of them ended up in ireland because ireland tolerated them Mm. and england as well that i think both countries were officially tolerant of the jews around 1904 but as we shall see tolerance is not the same as acceptance so what tolerance means is that they were legally allowed to be there and operate businesses and whatnot, mm-hmm. but people didn't actually like them
2: mm.
1: or feel positively towards them. So think about that the next time you see a bumper sticker that says tolerance. If you read the introduction to Don Gifford's Ulysses Annotated, he quotes author Lewis Hyman, who said that the idea of an Irish Jew in the early 1900s would have been laughable to the average Irish person, and that the climate in Ireland at that time was unsympathetic to the plight of the Jews. So they kind of allowed them to be there, but they didn't really care for them. Hmm. And, yeah, just the idea of an Irish Jew would be like, what is that even? That doesn't exist. Um, And Hyman says, and I quote, uh, the attitude was at best grudgingly neutral and at worst openly hostile.
0: By the 1930s, I think, um, Joe Briscoe, I think it was, was a Jewish lord mayor of Dublin. And his son, Ben Briscoe, would later go on to be a TD or a version of an MP or a congressman. And we had three Jewish TDs at one point in the 1980s, early 90s. But certainly, like a Jewish Lord Mayor in the 1930s or 40s was, was a thing. Um, yeah, so, but early 1900s is a full generation before that. So.
1: Well, I'm not quite done with 1904 yet. Yeah, okay. Because 1904, in the early months, was also the Limerick Boycott hmm. Um which is also maybe better known as the Limerick Pogrom. Uh, this was led by a Catholic priest named Father John Cray, and he urged his congregants to boycott all Jewish businesses, and this would often be combined with violence because the goal was to drive all the, the Jews out of Limerick, and uh, it did result in many Jews leaving Limerick because, you know, mm. I mean, that's, that's the purpose of a, a pogrom, is to get rid of them. Mm so um that was that would have been the same year that Ulysses took place and you know I I imagine Joyce would have known about it um and it would have you know happened quote unquote happened you know a few months before the events of Ulysses so it was definitely in the air and it's worth pointing out too that Mr. Deezy's and Haynes's views were in line with the average Dubliner's views in 1904. That their their views, though we look at them now in 2019 and go, Ugh. Mm-hmm. that they really they really wouldn't have been cause for remark in, in in their time period. Um, Anti-Semitism was really on the rise during the 19th century. Uh, there are lots of incidents you can point to in Europe around that time. Most notably, the Dreyfus affair, which if you're not familiar with. Uh, and you want me to explain, you're going to have to wait till we get to the parts of Proteus that deal with France. If not, Google that. Right. Yeah, it's uh, fairly shocking, but it was a really big deal in its day, and it's I think unfortunate. It's mostly forgotten now.
0: That was Emile Zola, a jacuzzi? Thing? Yes, was. He yes, yes, yes. He yes.
1: yeah. Yeah. So, the remark earlier about German Jews in particular, Haynes mentions German Jews. Did you have any theories about where that came from?
0: Well, what really catches my eye about that is that Karl Marx was a German Jew, and I think a lot of times it's a peculiar use of language that I thought, could that be about Marx? Why is it a German Jew and not a French Jew or a you know, Jew from some other country? It's a fairly particular thing, and Germany would have been like a hotbed of Marxist uh, thought and ideology. So I was just curious, was it conflating, what, you know, because can, it can be two. You can be anti-Semitic and anti-communist at the mm-hmm. same time, or one can lead to the other, or have a feedback mm-hmm. loop, or they could be separate. I didn't know. So I was just curious about mm-hmm. that. Okay. Because these, these these kind of people would certainly not have been any uh, lovers of Marx or Marxism mm-hmm. or any socialist ideology. Yeah. So it's it's a twofer. It's like, oh my God, not only are the Jews, but they're Marxists as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Gifford's take on this is that anti-Semitism kind of I would not say originated in Germany, but there was a, a pamphlet in 1879 written by Wilhelm Marr called The Victory of Judaism over Germanism. And this is one of the first print references to the term antisemitism. He's, so he's seen as kind of coining the word antisemitism, uh, an idea which the pamphlet supported. So it was writing like, yeah, being antisemitic is, is good for Germany. Um... And he described the Jews as dictators of the financial system. So this is well, echoing a very common Jewish stereotype, but also it's mm. it's what Mr. Deasy said.
0: And this is also you know? around the time the, the Tsarists um came up with the garbage protocols of the elders of Zion, the mm. fake conspiracy about okay. the Jews. Um I don't know what, what year exactly that dates from, but certainly pre revolution, of course. Okay. Um so there a lot of garbage floating around.
1: Yeah. And it also mentions the Germans, which mm-hmm. Haynes mentioned. We have one more little line to and it's just it's actually the very last line of Nestor. Could you read that for us?
0: On his wise shoulders, through the checkerwork of leaves, the sun flung spangles dancing coins.
1: So that's talking about Mr. Deezy walking back under kind of the, the dappled shadows of the trees and into his school. I love that. The sun flung spangles dancing coins. So Mr. Deezy, for all his anti-Semitism, is guilty of many of the things he blames on the Jews. Mm-hmm. So starting with money obsession, I mean, the first thing he starts talking to Stephen about is, the, you know, the proudest thing I can ever say is I never borrowed a shilling. That's the proudest boast of any Englishman. You know, I paid my own way. And he's trying to get Stephen to get that money box mm-hmm. and lecturing Stephen on his, you know, wasteful spending, and he has a bunch of you know, devalued currency on his desk, so he's happy to have any kind of currency, even if it's... Worthless. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's, I'd say, fairly money-obsessed. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also interested in trying to influence people through the press, using his personal contact, which in this case is Stephen Dedalus, yep. to make sure that his point of view gets into the newspapers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, his his letter is about foot-and-mouth disease, so... Um, I it's it's not a very nefarious no yeah. <laughs> manipulation of the press yeah but he that is what he's trying to do he's saying make sure my stuff gets in there because my stuff is more important and you you're my contact and you know I, I help me get in touch with this other I guess he didn't ask for contact with the MP that was in Joyce's biography but um you know he's trying to manipulate the press on his own right. small level sure, sure. um. And there's also a very intriguing article, which will be in the show notes, by uh, a scholar named Anne-Marie Darcy, and I don't quite remember the name, but it uses the sort of history of place names in Ireland to hypothesize that Mr. Deezy's name came not from the dzy Act of 1865, as we said last time, but instead from this tribe that was expelled from the hill of Tara and forced to wander landless throughout Ireland. Uh, I think they're part real, part mythical. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a lengthy article with a lot of linguistic analysis in it so and historical analysis and you, Ulyssian analysis. Yeah. So I'm not going to try to explain it any more than that. But if you're really curious about that, it's in the show
0: notes. Didn't you say they settled in... Uh, Waterford. In
1: Waterford, yeah. And I
0: thought that's really peculiar because there's a well-known political family called the DZs in Waterford mm. for f- in the Fine Gael party, and they're okay. real troublemakers, <laughs> apparently. Okay. Um, they're always a thorn in the side of the party. All right. So, well, I mean, I,
1: that that might have been an, an inspiration to her I yeah. don't know about. <sighs> <laughs> so that's all very depressing. Well,
0: no, DC is shadow projecting. He
1: yeah, is, absolutely. Is
0: taking his own characteristics yeah. and projecting them onto other
1: people. I, I would, I, you think it's fair to say he lacks self-awareness? Oh
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, Edward Side's, uh main point of Orientalism was that people in the West use the Orient as a white page and they just project all of their nightmares and their dreams and fantasies onto it and they mm-hmm. never actually encounter the Orient at all mm-hmm. because they're so busy, you know, dealing with their own hallucinations. Mm-hmm and uh, i think that uh, explains a lot of the stuff that's going on here.
1: All right. I think that's a, that's a really good way to end this one. I'm not going to come up with a, come up with anything better than that. Thank you, Dermot. You're welcome. All right. Well then, i guess signing off for this week. We'll be back with all your Mr. DZ news in 2 weeks. Until then, I'm Kelly and
0: I'm Oh, Dermot, I'm Dermot.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right, bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com to read our blog, which is updated weekly on Mondays with a new blog post and artwork about James Joyce's novel, Ulysses. And you'll find a new podcast there as well, fortnightly. We are on Facebook. You can search for our Facebook group, Blooms and Barnacles podcast on Facebook. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us barnacle cast you can find our podcast pretty much any place you find podcasts that includes itunes google play music stitcher soundcloud and spotify go ahead and subscribe and you won't have to remember which week we're dropping the podcast also feel free to leave us a review on itunes as that helps our rankings and helps people find the podcast And if you leave a positive review we'll read it on the podcast Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is through email. You can email us at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Please send questions and comments, and we'll read them on the show if we get any good ones. Until then, have a great two weeks, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.